I will um, talk about out of Mesopotamia, uh, how it came about uh, briefly, and uh, I will uh, write, uh, read my author's statement, uh, and then I'll read a few brief excerpts from the book itself. And as I do that, I will uh, make some uh, uh, explanations uh, about where we are in the book and what it's all about. But before I do all that, I'll just um, <clears throat> talk about um, how Out of Mesopotamia came about. It came about because as, uh, as, uh, as we were just told, I spent quite a bit of my life and time in the Middle East, specifically Iran. And when, uh, when the uh, ISIS phenomenon began in, the, in uh, Iraq and Syria, I was here and um, uh, for an extended period of time. And one of the things I was um, uh, struck by uh, with this phenomenon, it was taking place very, very close to our borders, to the people I love and my family, my friends in Tehran. And at the same time, I felt uh, the milieu I come from in Tehran and other places in Iran, there seemed to be a disconnect where, about the reality of this danger that was posed uh, by the phenomenon of ISIS. Uh, at some point, literally knocking on the gates of Baghdad and other places. And uh, the sort of carefree life of my milieu that happens every day, let's say in Tehran and in Tehran's cafe society. And because uh, I've spent quite a long time, uh, you know, hanging out with uh, war photographers, uh, war documentarians, journalists in the region, my previous books have had elements of that, certainly Tehran at Twilight did. Um, I very quickly, uh, um, with my partner at the time, uh, we went to Iraq in the very, very start of the war. Uh, we went to the south. Uh, there were a lot of refugees coming from the north. And uh, then things, you know, things escalated. Um, yeah, ISIS, you know, cut a wide swath through Iraq. And uh, we became, Iran became involved. and. Uh, to stop them. And then Ayatollah Sistani of Iraq, the grand Ayatollah of Shiism, uh, sent out his famous fatwa. And then uh, the Shiite Hashd al-Shabi, the people's forces gathered together and Iran uh, created the logistics. And I was a part of all that sort of uh, system that was happening, uh, sometimes as a witness, sometimes with a camera, sometimes engaged in various ways. And um, I wasn't sure what I was up to, uh, except that this, uh, this moment in history was important to me in, in many ways. In other places, I've, uh, I've compared it to our Spanish Civil War. It's not quite the right, um, you know, it's, it's a bit of an exaggeration, but I wanted to bring home the point that uh, you know there, there were various elements that were joining ISIS and on, uh, on our side, there were various elements trying to stop it. 
and it was very much it had that quality of uh, there were bigger forces at play uh, sort of pulling the strings and i was with my boots on the ground uh, seeing it from that perspective and uh, i ended up writing a novel about it even though first i started out by wanting to uh, aiming to write a non-fiction book but i thought in the grand scheme of things, there are things that a novel can do that have staying power that are not of the moment of the time. I really wanted to catch uh, uh, the, the strangeness of, uh, of combat in the 21st century with social media and uh, uh, close to being, you know, being able to be in battle in one moment and a few hours later be sipping coffee in Tehran or just a little bit longer in New York City. My life uh, encompassed all of these places. And in any given week, I could be in all three or five places. And it was very discombobulating and very strange and bizarre and funny and a lot of the times. And I thought the only way I could catch um, all of that was through the novel. So on that note, I'm going to read <clears throat> my author's statements about uh, about uh, the book itself uh, out of Mesopotamia, and then I'll read a few excerpts. Uh, and here we go. I had been working on a film script in Persian, occasionally writing opaque texts on contemporary Middle Eastern art in English and going to war in Arab lands. The war was around the corner in Iraq and Syria and always in Afghanistan. It was over our skies in Iran and in the Persian Arab Gulf where US warships sit perennially waiting. It was in the martyrs I knew personally who were returning in coffins from the battles against ISIS and the survivors of various fronts who hadn't a clue what to do with themselves when they went back home on leave. Usually these men couldn't wait to return to the war. They were lost in peace and did not know what to do with it. Often they talked about martyrdom, the when and how, and sooner or later they went ahead and got themselves killed. I was a part of all this. I had sorted out, not because peace was tedious. In fact, war and its eternal waiting is a lot more tedious. But because this particular war seemed essential to witness. The world I knew was literally a knife's edge away from it. One day back from the war, I saw men and women sitting in a cafe in downtown Tehran. They were fashionable, beautiful, and oblivious of the horrors taking place just a few hundred miles from them. It was a Friday, which meant it was also art gallery hopping day for them. The words of Marcel Proust about the Great War came to my mind. In the last book of In Search of Lost Time, there's a passage in which the French writer talks about the sting in seeing a veteran on leave, walking the streets of Paris and glancing up at the windows of cafe society, where another world entirely different from what the soldier knows is in full swing. I was that soldier but I was also the people inside the cafes of Tehran and also New York, where I happened to live and work half of the year. 
My multiplicity of worlds was paired with that of the fighters I bunked with, who were enamored of posting online the selfies and videos they took before going into battle and dying hours, sometimes minutes later. Once I decided to write about this staggering absurdity, I knew I could not write about only combat, but rather about the convergence of the precious world of art alongside that of war in a moment where nothing, not even dying for a just cause is sacred. It was to a large measure, a fictionalization of the life I lived over a period of half a decade, but also the lives or combinations of lives of many people I knew, some alive and some no longer. As I wrote this novel of war and art and the life of the writer in a time of war, I was aware of the long shadows of eminences such as Hemingway and O'Brien, whom I have lived with, read raptly and allude to now and then, while recognizing that my own story comes to the reader from the other side of the lens, so to speak. I write about the men and women whose voices are mostly silenced behind the headlines in Mesopotamia and other killing fields of the Middle East. Yet in doing so, I would like to think that I give voice to, to that lone soldier whom Proust spoke of a hundred years earlier in Paris. So that was my author's statement. And now I will read uh, some excerpts from the book to you. Um, a couple of Arabic words, uh, one of which we also use in Persian, I will uh, point out beforehand. A mokeb is a place where uh, in war, warriors uh, uh, sort of come to rest and, uh, you know, sleep or eat. And uh, our hero spends a lot of his time during the war being part of the mokeb cooking, you know, like taking care of the place for the warriors who come and go. But it's also a place for pilgrims in, in, in other <coughs> iterations. And the other word uh, in, uh, is a satyr. A satyr is basically a trench in warfare. Uh, we call it a satyr uh, in, in Arabic. So this is from the beginning of the book. Uh, it takes place in Syria. Most of the book takes place either in Iraq or, uh, or Iran. <clears throat> but this actually begins in Syria. Uh, lately, the Red House had been a favorite obsession for the enemy. By now, the initial suspicions uh, that the regulars had for me had settled into a stolid acceptance, even deference. The Iraqi Arabs who were there called me doctor. The Iranians called me professor, while the Afghans preferred commander. None of this was said with irony. We were all getting shot at equally and dying at farcical rates. Distrust under these circumstances doesn't have a place, and in mortars and dushka rounds make no distinction. Nasif had come a week before our night watch asking for volunteers for the Red House. The enemy was desperate to get it back, and there was something absurd about the desire of this desire of theirs. Even more absurd was their drive to get back to the town of Khan T, in which the Red House sat. Maybe they thought they could relink with the road to Aleppo from there and pause their recent losing streak. Whatever it was, they were dying for it, 
which suited us. Nassif said, the red house is empty. The rage in his voice was contained but icy. In that simple statement, I saw all the strangeness of this war. What were we doing here? Vultures perched on Mesopotamia's tired bones. I glimpsed my lamb, who was my age, a hardened veteran of the Iran-Iraq war of 30 odd years earlier, wheezing and writing in his notebook. He couldn't write a war diary if his mother's life depended on it, but I wasn't going to tell him that. More than anyone, he had warmed up to me, reminiscing about the, how the Karbala four battle of back in the day was the mother of all battles, though he should have said mother of all defeats. He lost two cousins and three dozen comrades in that bleak epic. Maybe he was there where he was gassed. I never asked him about it, and he didn't offer details. Mualem wheezed and gradually died over these 30 years, yet he kept at it. War for him was a kind of essence. He breathed it. Without it, he ceased to be. Mualem too, like Nasif, would soon be dead. I would not be there at Khanti when it happened. They'd bring me four of his notebooks filled with daily minutiae of war in Syria, tasking me to edit them into something comprehensible for publication. They were mostly banal observations about weapons, the 120 mortar, the 60, the lethal unavoidable cornet, which they said eventually killed him. A lot of scribbling about his faith and the faith of his companions in those pages. He wrote about fasting for days on end when there was not much else to do here, about going to Damascus to pay his respects at the Zainab shrine. He wrote about martyrdom and never let up on that subject. Martyrdom was our shibboleth. We distinguished each other's sincerity by the way someone talked too little or too much about it. We knew who was lying and who was telling the truth when they prayed for martyrdom. We were adept at intuiting when a guy was ready to leave this world. A certain light, a halo even, would surround him. He became extra kind. His prayers turned heroic. He cried a lot. This was not always the case, and maybe not all of these things happened at the same time. But they happened enough times that my martyr radar was strong. I knew when a man was finally tired and felt like he had done his share of protecting the holy places and was ready to leave this world. How could I go back to Tehran and order coffee on Karim Khan Avenue after this experience? How to complain, contemplate leaving this geography? So basically, um, so that was, uh, that gives a general overview of what this, who this guy is, he's a journalist who does many things, uh, but now he's covering war, but he's become uh, really, he's, he's gotten himself neck deep in the war. He's not just a casual bystander. And in the mocha, uh, he befriends uh, these Iranian, uh, a squad of Iranian snipers uh, who are all volunteers. They, uh, they clawed and begged their way to get to Iraq to fight, and that is the truth. A lot of people came there completely voluntarily, and I saw it. And so he befriends these Iranians uh, uh, who visit him at the Mokhab uh, now and then, 
and other Arabs, Iraqi Arabs. Um, and they hang out in this place across the Mokeb in another building. And uh, he, one of them that he loves very, very much, this one Iranian sniper, his name is Ali Akbar. He dies in one of the battles. And uh, his three other friends, he calls them the three Magi. So I'll read from a section towards still the beginnings of the book. Before long, Khaled took the heavy truck and went to join the government forces gathering outside Mosul. I could not blame him. Mosul was his home. The waiting here was like cultivating mold. And after Ali Akbar's premature death, even martyrdom seemed questionable, though we never mentioned it. Then a man in charge of intelligence for the formidable Kataib forces came up from Baghdad and ordered the rest of the Iranian sniper team, the three Magi, to go south with him and then home. One dead Persian from a sniper squad was enough to put him through the ringer. He didn't want more. This left me alone to my sealed-in circumstances. I smiled a lot at my revolving door of Iraqis who were especially enamored of this thing called Facebook and who watched me wide-eyed when I explained I did not yet have an account. Who knows if years from now, the name will even ring a bell, but back then in that geography, this virtual Republic of Facebook was the river that connected the Arab warriors. They took pictures of themselves five minutes before dying, then three minutes before dying, if luck and bandwidth were with them. on the last thing that might be thought sacred, combat. We should have already known nothing was sacred. We were simulations. In another year or two, tourists would probably be roaming this very ground where Ali Akbar had stepped stupidly on a tripwire inside a school building while we took that village. We were, in other words, ornaments. Then I'll read another brief section uh, towards the very middle of the book uh, where all of these people that he's known near the Mokab have gone and, uh, and uh, he goes back to the place they used to hang out at and new people are, are there. <clears throat> that night, the big guns aiming towards Syria would not give it a break. Unable to sleep, I walked across the road to where Khaled used to keep house and where Ali Akbar and the three Magi of the sniper team would come every afternoon unless they were pulling duty at the Sata. It seemed like a lifetime ago in real terms, in real terms, only a few months had passed. Nostalgia can blanket a man when the people who populated the dangers he knew are no longer there. I knocked on the door and no one answered, but people were staying here. Recently washed clothes hung from clotheslines. I knocked again and when there was still no answer, I let myself in, same room, nothing had changed except for the fighters who lived here while the war continued. In a corner of the same mattress lay where Shorty, one of the three Magi had taken a long sleep after his best friend Ali Akbar's martyrdom. Shorty was a compact 20-something from Qom whose prayers tended to go on interminably. 
that day, the way he slept after Ali Akbar was killed, it was as if he were cleansing himself of something. When he woke up, it was like he had slept a thousand years, and during that time he had made many ablutions. We didn't talk about Ali Akbar again until Tehran. I crawled onto the mattress and closed my eyes. <clears throat> Before long, there were men in the room, all of them young Iraqis, their AKs hanging off the same hooks where Khaled and Martyr Ali Akbar and the three Magi used to hang their weapons. The television was on. This was new. There hadn't been a TV before. And they seemed to clearly receive the channels broadcasting from the Gulf. I sat in silence alongside the other men, watching a Hollywood movie in English with Arabic subtitles. Every single actor in the film looked astounding, the women and the men. A story about a future world where survivors of some catastrophe live in a bubble and the heroine is mermaid-like and more beautiful than anything in the Arabian Nights. We were mesmerized. Just a few kilometers from the Sater, we sat watching the world of the beautiful, their fictions broadcasting right into this broken room that the enemy almost managed to capture some months ago on their way to steal fuel they needed to get them to the capital of their fictitious empire down the road in Syria. I do not know how to translate any of this. I do not know in how many worlds a person can live simultaneously before they lose themselves completely. There is not language enough to explain all of this. And then I have two more brief sections to read to you. Now, this is um, towards the middle still. One thing about this war was that uh, on paper, Iran and, and the U.S. were fighting the same common enemy. And uh, uh, when you're in these situations, uh, uh, all kinds of things go through your head, all kinds of things happen, you know. Um, basically, you know, your convoy passes their convoy. I, I called it uh, like ghosts in the afternoon passing each other. Uh, ostensibly, you're uh, you're uh, on the same side, allies, but you know everything is waiting to be blown up, and there's a lot of bad feeling, a lot of bad blood on both sides. And uh, I try to the hero tries to convey that in this passage. Blame seems to be going around today. Everyone drank their tea and said God's name too many times. The Americans were always the object of derision in these conversations. Their occasional air support for us questionable at best. On the surface, we were fighting on the same side for a change and against an enemy that wanted the earth itself to be gone. Over at places like Palmyra in Syria and Mosul down the road from us, the enemy had gone on orgies of destruction of all things ancient afterwards gloating in their sick cruelty over priceless historical stones that could not fight or talk back. No wonder then that in the mocap and up and down all the satyrs of the war, we quietly saw, saw ourselves as the soldiers of civilization, even if no one else believed us or gave a shit. It was not something that was talked about, but it was there in the air of every minor battle 
and in the newscast out of Iraq too. This was Nineveh after all, the ancient capital of the Assyrians, the Nineveh of the Bible and the vast 2700 year old stone tablet library that once held. We were certain we were fighting for something bigger than just Mesopotamia. And we were eating the bullets that the Americans who despised our skin and our faces and our weapons should have been eating right alongside us. The Americans saw us as rodents and we saw them as a hollow Goliath. They laughed at our poetry and queer dancing in the middle of war while we wept and held wakes after their friendly fires that killed our brothers. I wondered if anything, anything at all, could ever bridge these suspicions. And then finally, uh, towards the end of the novel, uh, I chose this to sort of uh, give you a sense of what these landscapes, uh, these desolate landscapes of battle, of war, look like, and more importantly, how it feels to be in those places, especially when you consider all the people you have lost. The country was a flat nothingness, occasionally on parallel dirt roads, a dot moved and we didn't know if the thing was ours or not. Nothing was taken for granted in victory because victory had been here before and it always managed to slip away like fish or happiness. We drove in three trucks, <coughs> hardened men who breathed retribution and the diesel stench of war and loved it. I sat in front next to the cleric, taking in the murderous smoke of cigarettes that only he and I seemed not to care for. The vehicles putrid with a stateliness that is indescribable. If I survived, I would live out my life remembering hours such as this when breathing seemed pointless. My eyes tried and failed to catch the distances where a drone, a plane, a gunship, an enemy suicide truck, a friendly, or really any motherfucker at all who could spook you out of your melancholy might suddenly emerge. But my eyes were lemons, God-given failures that mostly just guessed at the things men spoke of when they pointed into distances and felt for the placement of their weapons. Names, everywhere there were names. So many combatants and hangers-on and lost souls treading the dying misfortune of Mesopotamia that one got lost in the maze of titles and martyrs and those waiting in line. I had developed a fear of returning to the places where war was at a respite or non-existent. Though dangerous, Talapta was still a few kilometers too far away from the action. I would rather go back to our mocap and wait for the enemy to strike again. It would have been suicide on their part to hit us once more. But suicide was their stuff of life. And somehow I held the unreasonable faith that if only I stayed at the mocap long enough, all the dead would return as if they were ghosts on a catwalk. Thank you. Uh, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Abbasim Loni. Uh, it is my uh, very distinct Pleasure to welcome back to Stanford uh, my dear friend, uh, Salah Abdul, and easily uh, one of the most accomplished Iranian writers writing in the English language. 
and writing in the English language in several different genres. Uh, he has written what has been called uh, one of the best spy thriller novels, The Poet Game, for example. Uh, he has uh, essentially introduced noir writing to Iran and collected a, a very incredible selection of noir writing and translated them. He's a professor of uh, creative writing uh, at New York. Uh, and now he has written what has been claimed by many critics, uh, the best war novel about the war in Iraq and Syria. Uh, Abdul comes from a very unique family. I think uh, some of you who are not from Iran must uh, uh, learn a little bit about his family. Um, for those of you who are soccer fans, uh, his uh, father was uh, the owner of Persepolis, one of the two most important teams in Iran, uh, beloved by many and uh, hated by others. Uh, his brother is easily one of the most accomplished uh, playwrights uh, and directors, Reza Abdul. Uh, and uh, the novel, and I urge you to read this novel uh, because uh, it is a, a gripping, brilliant, uh, profoundly tragic, often comic, uh, very ironic, but very telling account of uh, a war that we have all heard about. Uh, I was telling uh, Salar before we began that few um, years ago when ISIS was at its height, uh, I gave a couple of talks on ISIS and I, I read much of their writing in English and I had an image of them, uh, their madness, their uh, despotism. But reading this and reading both sides of the, the war as he depicts it, uh, brings a totally new perspective on this, for me at least. Uh, one great critic said the purpose of art is to defamiliarize reality. And what this novel does is it defamiliarizes everything you know, you think you know about Iraq, about Syria, about ISIS, about Hashd al-Shabi, about the Afghans who are sent to die in, Af in uh, Syria by the Iranian regime and by the Iranian system itself. It offers a very different view. Uh, I truly recommend that you uh, should uh, try to purchase this because it both reads well and it's extremely informative. And he has decided to publish the book with a publisher that uh, essentially publishes uh, iconoclastic uh, authors, people who don't want to go through the grind of the big publishing house. Uh, and when I read it, I, I always thought throughout reading it that uh, if Colden uh, Hoffman of a catcher in the rye was sent to war with the writing capacity uh, of uh, the writer of homage to Catalonia and the cynicism of, Cesar of uh, Ca uh, Catch-22 ca character, Eusarian. That is the novel they would get. So if you get this, you get a combination of these rather remarkable sensibilities and offering you uh, an engrossing page turner of the novel, which I, the first question I have to ask is uh, how do we separate the Salar 
the writer, from the Saleh, who is uh, the narrator. There's, as you said, a lot of uh, biographical, autobiographical novels. It's almost like a Romana Clay. We are always trying to figure out who these people are, what these events are to. How do we avoid this temptation and read it, not as a memoir, but as a fiction? Uh, thank you, uh, dear Abbas, Dr. Milani. Um, I, I have to repeat that it's such an honor to be in your presence. Um, years and years ago, uh, I may have repeated this last time I was here, but years and years ago when I was in Berkeley, I essentially wrote my first short story ever as a young man while I was still in college. And you happened to read it. It was a story of a pair of shoes <laughs> and the shoe was talking and, you, and we had invited you to our Iranian group and you said to me, you, you gave me words of encouragement and that always, that was like my first critique ever that I received and I'll never forget that and has stayed with me. And to go back to your question, um, you know, we write novels for various reasons and uh, we, we choose uh, what, point of, what point of view and what perspective to use in a novel. Um, when I started to write this novel, I quickly realized that, as, as I also say in the author's statement, I, I realized I'm not going to stray too far from myself. It doesn't mean everything is autobiographical in this novel, but even in the places that I had to do some research, everything comes from a place of, let's say, truth. Everything sort of happened or combinations thereof. And when I, was, I started writing, I thought the best way to, to depict this, you know, I'm not going to change this person's name too far from myself, you know, Salar Saleh, you know, like even where he lives in Tehran is sort of like where I live. And uh, there were various reasons for that. Uh, uh, but, you know, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Orwell, homage to Catalonia, I, uh, and uh, all of these uh, amazing writers uh, whom I've read uh, deeply over the years, uh, war writers and others. I thought this is a, this is a, a novel that, 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 that craves the truth, uh, but the truth in our age is so um, is so truly absurd. In our age, where in an age where uh, uh, the disconnect between uh, between war and peace uh, is sometimes is only a few miles away. Uh, I've been, for instance, in places in the Middle East where um, the enemy was literally uh, 20 kilometers away. And if they caught you, uh, the things they would do to you is beyond imagination. And 20 kilometers away, let's say in a place like Erbil in Kurd, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan, life points on as if nothing is going on. And like these sorts of disconnects or like for instance in the novel, uh, the hero and um, Saleh, you know, he's using his uh, Iran cell phone to to talk to people because you know his Iraqi cell phone is that you know he has the bandwidth in Iraq, you know, and things like that. And then all the things that happen 
with the with the martyrs and then the reality of you know like people think of martyrdom it's an abstraction for them but it's not an abstraction it's a reality and it it's it has it and it's ritual and it's theater and it has its very uh, set uh, moments it, it's it has a narrative and when you put all of that together and you write a novel uh, you don't you don't need to create too much you know you don't need to go into your fantasies too much and because you don't need to do that um, uh, you tend I'm talking about me I tend to this I decided in this novel to, to just sort of stick close to myself because if I if I were going to create more of the, of everything, uh, it would the novel itself might start to become uh, um, to fall apart because it would lose an essential reality that I wanted to hold on to as much as that reality was driving me insane. To be honest. Uh I, I don't want to. I don't want to take too much of uh, your time. Uh, uh, I mean, because we have questions, I want to get to. Uh, we want to get to the audience question. But uh, some the readings that you gave don't. Uh, I think do uh, don't give a sense of some of the remarkable figures that are here. I just want to ask you to comment on one of them, for example. Uh, Proust plays a very important. Uh, role in this narrative. Could you tell the uh, audience uh, how you came across the Proust text and how it then circulates all around between you and uh, uh, the martyrs and uh, the, uh, the watchers who is constantly watching you to make sure you are within the bounds of what you can write and where you can go? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Proust uh, plays a very big, uh, you know, he's like a sort of a foil in this in this novel. Uh, when I came uh, to live in Iran for the first time after the revolution, um, right after the war, I was very young, just finished college in California. And I brought with me 11, 12 box, huge boxes of books, and I brought Proust with me. And I, I was reading Proust and I was underlining as I was reading. And, um, and uh, I, uh, I led, you know, life led me to other places and other things. And, you know, I gave my books, I left my books where it was. And then um, one day, uh, a few years ago, when I was here, I saw my Proust in my friend's library, and, um, it which was totally fine. But when I was in New York and I was uh, writing the novel, I called him and I said, Ali, could you, um, uh, could you go to the last book of, uh, of, uh, of the Proust book and uh, Time Regained and take a photo of every page where I've underlined something or made a comment. And he did. So, and he sent it to me via WhatsApp. You can do this stuff in this day and age. And basically that's, I used my, I, I utilized my own underlines of Proust made in my mid twenties uh, for this book. But why Proust to begin with? Uh, I've said this elsewhere, you know, Proust in his, in his, in his grand masterwork, uh, 
he talks about everything that there is under, under the, in existence. And one of the things that he goes back to time and again is, uh, is, is war because, uh, you know, the, the great war was happening, you know, it was France, uh, Paris, uh, you know, the, so, and he talks about, and he talks about, like I talk about in, uh, in my author's statement, he, Proust talks about uh, uh, watching that soldier, that veteran on leave and the disconnect between him and the cafe society. So as I was writing the book, uh, I, I felt a very a keen closeness to Proust's observations as a writer uh, and also uh, uh, closeness to that soldier because I had I had been I, I had worn many hats uh, uh, during this period, and uh, I, I thought uh, there's no one better to uh, to utilize to sort of give that 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 aspect of how it feels to be an outsider and also an insider, and then once I began to execute this in the novel, I decided to, you know, like, you know, people have various notions, like, let's say when you're interrogated, you know, in the West, you know, people, you know, the idea just makes them, you know, crazy scared, but like, you can actually be interrogated by someone and in the back of your mind think, you know, I could have a, you know, cello cab up with this guy in another in another life or we could have a drink or coffee because like the guy's doing his job and you know I, I, I don't you know I not only I don't dislike him I kind of like this guy in, in a weird you know like way that things happen and uh, there's always a ceiling to that of course and you're aware of it and they're aware of it but I thought I thought the absurdity of uh of uh, these lives where you know you have that kind of a job to ask questions and then you have this and then you have to make answers i thought okay i'll turn it all i'll channel it all through proofs and see what happens and in some odd bizarre way it all kind of worked out yeah well, um I, I know that there are lots of questions but um i i think um uh, in uh uh in the novel uh, it, do make it clear that uh, I think at least that every uh, decision we make is a choice we make and we are responsible for it. Even to the decision to become an interrogator that reads Proust and doesn't uh, pull fingers uh, is a decision that uh, he or she makes to serve this regime and this cause. And journalists and you are very brilliant in depicting the array of choices that people make uh, from staying completely out of the system to working within the system or to working this system. Uh, and sometimes it is absurd or, uh, and uh, you uh, paint that absurdity, I think. Uh, uh, the place where you mention uh, uh, waiting for Godot and say, if he was here, this is, I think, <laughs> the novel he would write. Uh, would be very similar to the novel you have written. Everybody is waiting for Godot. Absolutely. I think uh, like one of the themes in the novel, like, you know, the, the hero is very harsh on, on journalists, uh, on, on con the documentary filmmakers, war photographers in general. And he's part of that whole, uh, yeah. whole milieu. 
so he's harsh on himself because he sees the element of opportunism you know when you when you go to war or when you make documentaries of people in war uh, uh, you're basically they always in the back of your mind is the thought that uh, you know you're using these people for your own advantage or career and uh, a lot of the, a lot of people a lot of colleagues don't ever ask themselves this question our hero Saleh does ask himself that question and therefore at every turn he's making a choice to try to do the right thing even though there are times where he has to sell out but in general he tries to uh, he tries not to uh, fall into that um, vortex of just doing everything for the sake of uh, furthering his own career as a, whether it's a war journalist or a reviewer, he writes art reviews and, you know, and so he's always, he's always angry. He's a, he's a man who comes back from war time and again, and at one point he's looking at a the theater crowd in Tehran and he, he thinks about, oh, they're always shoving Samuel Beckett and Chekhov down people's throat. Uh, they, these people have no idea what a real Samuel Beckett landscape looks like. Uh, I wish I could take them to Iraq with me for five minutes. And, uh, you know, so, you know, he has those angry moments. And those are angry moments that I've had, you know, I, I've had against people who are my friends who are living perfectly um oblivious lives sometimes in in tehran let alone new york and you know you think about this this is a troubled world we live in and uh, sometimes it's easy not to uh, be aware of it it's very easy not to be aware of our, of the of this troubled world whether it's the climate change or wars next to us and uh, i was i was that angry man i was uh, uh, saleh was an extension an extension, extension of my own anger. The world and it is took a, a while. Place. It took a while to to get out of that mode. It was the world amazing. is a better place because of your anger. So <laughs> keep riding your anger. Now I think uh, Roma wants to ask some questions from the audience. <coughs> Thank, you Thank you so you. much. Yeah, we have several questions and comments, so I'll try to get to a few of them. One viewer, just a comment from a viewer says, thanks a lot, Mr. Abdo, for this great novel. Each sentence catches me and I sometimes have to read them loud for myself again and again, as if I need to recapture the pleasure of those sentences. Another, so. another viewer writes, a beautiful work, Salar, your writing took hold of me through the last page and has two specific questions. One of them you already addressed about Proust, so I'll ask the second one. The viewer writes, on page 234, you wrote, my own mother I visited just once at the Heshte Zahra Cemetery. I would not visit her again. Can I ask you why? Why the hero will not visit her again? Well, because he's had a very complicated uh, relationship with her. And uh, uh, when he visits her that one time, he sort of puts it, puts it to rest, at least in his own mind. He doesn't want to go back and uh, relive something that he'll probably never come to a, a resolution with. Thank you. Another viewer writes, thinking of Iraq and modern day Iran, what are some conclusions the West should know about regarding media and journalism today? 
And a similar question, how has social media or the instant media coverage of today changed the way wars and conflict are reported on? This is a very complicated uh, thing to answer. You really can't, I, I, it's hard to answer it uh, just off, off one's hat. Uh, social media, the, 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 the advance of technology has made many things interesting. You know, we, we can really cover things that we could not cover before. Uh, uh, war has changed dramatically. The use of drones has has changed things, changed the geography of war and they're covering it. Um, but at the same time, at the same time that all of these capabilities exist, it has, uh, it has also, I think from what I have witnessed, it has created multiple worlds. And this is not just in war, in everything. So that what happens is uh, uh, while we, while we believe we are covering something, we're we're bringing information back and forth. Uh, what's what's really happening is that at the same time, that's that plethora of, of information, uh, from my experience, is is diminishing the the reality that's happening in the in the world in the underground. Hunger is hunger. It, it, it's not going to go away if you beam your, you know, your video from, uh, from uh, the town of Biji in Iraq to somewhere in the West. Uh, a wound is a wound, uh, you know, running into, a, running into a body part or many body parts, losing a friend, losing friends. These are, these are realities. And you know, one, of the, one of the reasons I don't have social media that, that much, I, I barely ever use it. I wish I could use it more is that uh, I, I feel myself, I don't, I don't, I need, I need that very specific reality that's, that's, that you can touch. And uh, in, in, in times of war in these places, I thought uh, that plethora can, can 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 bring things home, but at, at the same time, it can sort of uh, uh, thin it out. I don't know how to explain it. So it's just a very difficult. It's a very difficult thing to ex, ex, uh, explain. Except that I'm not comfortable with it yet. Thank you. Another viewer writes, you describe the disconnect between veterans who have returned from war and those who have stayed behind. Vietnam War veterans have described the same disconnect upon their return, but also having received hate from those in the US who didn't approve of the war. In your opinion, does modern indifference to wars, quote, over there, traumatize veterans the same way or differently? Exactly the same way. I was coming from Iraq, uh... And my friends, my milieu, people I love, they were making fun of these fighters going to Iraq and Syria to fight for, for whatever reason, whether faith or, you know, protecting the holy places. And, you know, I had been there. I had seen, I had seen the sacrifices they made and I, I would come to Tehran every time and I would, I would be with people for whom uh, these other people, these other Persians, uh, Iranians were just, you know, fools or people who are, you know, whatever, too religious or this or that. And I thought to myself, uh, mm, 
I can't, I, I can't abide this. It's uh, these people, whatever reason they have to be there, uh, they're doing something that you're not doing and you're totally oblivious of. And I felt myself getting angrier and seething in anger, seething in anger every time I went to a party in Tehran or went to a cafe or went to see a theater or went to the museum. And then at that point, I realized, I really did, I thought about it. I thought, I know exactly what the Vietnam War veterans felt. I know exactly how they felt. And that was a very eye-opening moment for me. Thank you. Uh, viewer writes, how do you think writing in English as a non-native English speaker adds to English literature? I found the structure of sentences and word selections in such novels so different from English-speaking contemporary authors, and I'm wondering how it can change the literature. You know, any language that uses uh, in, in the English language can only be enriched by uh, by the variety of writers writing in it uh, from all over the world. Same thing happens to Spanish. Same thing happened to Arabic at some point, and probably happens today. Uh, we bring we bring our own baggage. It's a beautiful baggage, and sometimes we have to um, we have to make those little transfers that are not easy to do and we struggle with it every day. But English is an ocean which is being completely uh, um, <clears throat> replenished at every moment by people from all over the world, Africa, Middle East, the subcontinent. Uh, and it's not always easy for a writer. Sometimes uh, as I grow older, I want to write, I'm I'm driven to write more and more in Persian for, for reasons that I don't want to get into today. Uh, but uh, writing in English uh, uh, enriches me and also enriches the language. Uh, but I wish I could reverse it at some point and also write in Persian and Arabic. Thank you. One viewer asks, was Raymond Chandler, the World War I veteran and author of the Philip Marlowe series of detective novels, an influence on your writing? And if so, how? Uh, no, no he, he, he wasn't, at least not consciously, but uh, there was a moment in my life where I read uh, Chandler and um, all of these writers, uh, the whole noir, uh, the whole noir moment that sort of starts in the 1940s and you know has its heyday and sort of uh, sort of uh, plateaus out at some point i read a lot of them because i wanted to write those kinds of books as well so uh, chandler is not a definite is not a somebody that i consciously think about but all of these writers are in the back of you know one's a writer's mind when when you you know when you start typing Thank you. We have just a few minutes left, so I'm going to read a few questions and let you pick which one you'd like to respond to in the last few minutes. So one question is, what was the most challenging part of writing about war and conflict or these conflicts in particular that you're writing about? Or um, someone writes, your biography indicates you still spend time in Iran. What has been the reaction to your writing there? And finally, if you would like to share what you're working on now or what your next project is. So any of those. Um. I forgot the questions there. <laughs> what was the first? <laughs> no problem. What are some challenging parts of writing about war and conflict or this conflict in particular? 
But the pity of war is the mo is this most challenging part. Like you know, everything is condensed, uh, and you know you are you're you're faced with situations that that are very difficult, and you have to pass by them, like because you're in a situation where you have to leave somebody behind. Maybe someone, maybe somebody was killed. Maybe they were your friend. Maybe you have to go and visit, you know, their wife afterwards and say, you know, this is. This is his stuff. This, these are these are difficult things to uh, to to consider, and uh, it's a part of the, what I call the pity of war. Uh, the second question, real quick. Sure. The second question was uh, your biography indicates you still spend time in Iran. What has been the reaction to your writing there? Um, uh, and very, very well. I, uh, in the past uh, decade or less than decade, I started to write more and more and publish in Iran. A lot of my essays before they come out in, in the West, they actually come out in, in Iran. And, uh, and uh, Iran being, you know, the, in the US, for instance, you know, there's so many things happening at the same time. You know, you sometimes you feel like, uh, and I'm talking fast because I know we don't have time. It, sometimes you feel like, you know, you're not making an impact, but I will write an essay, let's say about my brother or about, you know, my refugee years when, uh, when I first was a teenager in the US. And it really affects people here in, in Iran. And, you know, they write to you, they, they come up to you on the street. They, you know, they create podcasts, you know, it's, it's a real, it's a relationship. Uh, oftentimes in the US, I don't feel like I quite have a relationship, but I'm in a marketplace. There are very two different things. And there was a third question. Just asking what you're working on next, any upcoming projects? Yeah, I've, I've already kind of finished what I'm working on next, but uh, I won't talk about it until inshallah it comes out. That sounds great. Thank you so much for joining us and for this wonderful conversation. A reminder that Talar Abdo's new book, Out of Mesopotamia, is available everywhere you can find books, and we'll include a link in the chat to the publisher. We hope we see you at Stanford again for your next work. Um, thank you, stay safe, and hopefully see you soon. Thank you to everyone for being here today, and uh, to Dr. Milani and to Roma and Franco for making this happen.